uh, I just wanted to take a time and thank the church. It's been a hard month um, for us. And um, I don't want this, uh, the pulpit or the church to ever be about um, a pastor, but I couldn't go without thanking you guys and letting you know how important the church is. Um, the love that we have got. Uh, I lost my mom this month, and um, this church has just surrounded us so much. I appreciate everything. I wanted to thank everyone. I wanted to let people know that her service will be this Saturday at 1. And um, if you're new here, um, I see faces I don't recognize. And I know there's people watching online right now and people visiting. If you're not plugged into a church, uh, I don't know how we would get through a lot of these things if we didn't have the church family. So I just wanted to encourage you for that. And I wanted to thank you guys and encourage you guys to get plugged in. If it's this church, we'd love to have you. If it's um, a different church, please find a different church that's solid, that would love on you guys, um, that you can love on others and pass on love. Uh, but it's so necessary in the Christian walk. Um, um, with that said, if you would follow along with me as I try to read this passage, uh, starting in verse 66. <clears throat> when day came, the assembly of elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes and they led him away to the council and they said if you are the Christ tell us and he said to them if I tell you you will not believe and if I ask you you will not answer for from now on the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God so they all said are you the son of God then and he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it from his own lips. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you're with us this morning as we uh, come from Christmas, Lord, and celebrating the birth of your son, or this baby in a manger. God, I pray that the reality of who this son was and is, it, it just weighs on us this morning. Lord, as we look at truly who is Jesus, who, who he is, Lord, I pray that, that we don't leave this morning without it affecting our lives, Lord, our worship, uh, and who you are, God, and what you have done for us, Lord, that we don't forget that this baby, Lord, grew up to be a man that died on the cross for our sins. And more than that, Lord, he is the Son, Lord, the second member of the Trinity, God incarnate. God, I pray that reality just weighs on us, Lord. And if there's anyone that doesn't, doesn't know you this morning, Lord, that's listening online or that's here in this building, Lord, I pray they do not leave without reflecting on what Christ has done, Lord. I'm not reflecting on their relationship with you. If they have one, Lord, if they don't, I pray they put their faith in your son. In his name, amen. I uh, had this sermon. I was planning on doing it a couple weeks ago, and so um, uh, we're going to 
have the sermon today. And I've been doing Christmas sermons for a few years now, and I've noticed a, a really a common theme in, in all Christmas sermons. They're really trying to answer one main question, and that question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? In fact, the last two sermons Zach preached, and I just want to thank Zach. Um, he found out Saturday, two weeks ago, that he was preaching Sunday. And uh, then he found out the next week he's preaching the, the following week, and he did a great job. I watched both of them, and I'm very thankful. And he was trying to answer that question through Scripture, who is Jesus? In fact, all the, the narratives of the birth of Jesus really are answering that question, who is he? Who is this baby? And probably it's the most important question you can ask yourself. Who is Jesus? In fact, I want you to see this. If you would, turn with me real quick to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the first verse of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew starts his gospel with this verse saying, the book of the genealogies of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Those are three huge claims that Matthew makes, that this Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, that he's the son of David, that he is the son of Abraham. And from this point on, Matthew proves who Jesus is through the narrative of the Gospel of Matthew. In verse 1, Matthew is really saying the whole Old Testament points to this one baby that's born in a manger. Remember the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is a Jew, and he's really writing to Jews. And he's telling this, these people that, that this baby born in the manger is the promised son of David, the promised son of Abraham. If you would, turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 1 says this, And as much as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have Certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke, in other words, wrote this gospel, the gospel of Luke, to explain who Jesus was and is to a man named Theophilus, probably a high official in the Roman Empire. Luke's audience was Gentiles, a Gentile man and, 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 and Greeks and Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and he was trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? Now, if you would turn to John chapter 1, verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. I think most of us have this verse memorized. John chapter 1, verse 1 starts with three words in the beginning. In the beginning. What's that sound like? Sounds like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John starts 
his gospel saying, in the beginning you expect the next word to be God. But what does John say? In the beginning was the word. The logos. Jesus. That's a huge claim. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is Jesus? John says, In the beginning he was with God, and he was God. Then the rest of the Gospel, John proves this claim, explaining who Jesus is. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's two huge claims that Mark makes. That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Son of God. And from here, Mark proves these claims In fact, chapters 1 through 3, he shows that Jesus comes on the scene and his popularity just grows and grows and grows. And then chapter 4, he shows that he has complete authority over the natural world. Anything he says happens. Chapter 5, he shows that he has authority over the supernatural worlds. Even demons listen to Jesus. Complete authority over the supernatural world, complete authority over sickness, complete authority over death. And everyone that's witnessing these things are are amazed at, at Jesus and who he is. And there's this question, who is this man? And you get the halfway point of the gospel, chapter 8, there's 16 chap- or chapters right in the middle at the halfway point. It says this in Mark eight twenty seven, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? There's that question. Who is Jesus? And Jesus is asking the disciples, who, who, all these people that are following us, all these people that are amazed by what's happening, who do they say that I am? And they told him, the disciples said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets... And then he asked them, the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. All four Gospels start with these huge claims about who Jesus is. And they back up these claims with narrative. And these all are trustworthy accounts. They're all men that were inspired by God when they wrote these, these, these Gospels. This is the Word of God. And they're all answering this question, who is Jesus? But here's a question I want to answer today. As we just got done celebrating Christmas, and we've heard sermons from... From, from Zach uh, on what Paul wrote about Jesus, on what uh, uh, Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, their claims on who Jesus was, as we've just seen and just read what Matthew claimed about Jesus, what Mark claimed about Jesus, what Luke and John claimed about Jesus. I want to answer this question this morning. Who did Jesus claim to be? Who did Jesus claim to be? If you would, turn back to Luke chapter 22, verse 63. Luke 
chapter 22, verse 63. As you're turning there, let me just give you kind of the context of what's going on in this passage. We're getting close to the death of Jesus. He's on trial right now in front of the Sanhedrin, which was the religious leaders of the Jewish nation. And they're questioning Jesus, asking him this same question, who are you? At least, who do you claim to be? Their goal was not to to find out who Jesus truly was. Their goal was to get Jesus in trouble with the Romans. They wanted Jesus dead and out of their way. And so they were asking him who he claimed to be. And in this short passage, we see three titles commonly used for Jesus. The first one is Christ or Messiah. The second one is Son of Man. And the third one is Son of God. And I want to look at all three of these titles this morning. So the first one is Jesus the Christ. A side note, just if you don't know this, Christ and Messiah are the same words. Christ is the Greek word and Messiah is the Hebrew word. And they both mean anointed one. So look at verse 66. It says this, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to the council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he, that's Jesus, said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if you ask, if I ask you, you will not answer. They're asking Jesus, Who do you claim to be? They wanted him to confess that he was the Messiah. Now, this is interesting because Messiah, for the Jewish nation, wasn't necessarily a a word of blasphemy. In other words, it was not worthy of death according to Jewish law. But the title Messiah could very easily get you in trouble with the Romans. And this was their goal. It was a title of kingship. It sounded like rebellion. The Romans didn't care necessarily if, if Jesus claimed to be God. But they did care if he was trying to start a rebellion by saying he was the true king, the Messiah. Sanhedrin was thinking if we can get him to claim that he is the Messiah, we might be able to get him in trouble with the Romans. But here's the problem. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus avoided using the term Messiah. Have you ever noticed that? You read through the Gospels, he rarely claimed to be the Christ or Messiah. I think it's partly why so many people were confused about who Jesus was throughout the Gospels. In fact, remember Mark 8, what we just read, Mark 8, verse 27, it says this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? He asked that question because there's confusion on who Jesus is. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. In other words, no one claimed that he was the Messiah. Why didn't people claim that he was the Messiah? There's two reasons. One, it was a bold claim. But two, Jesus himself didn't publicly claim to be the Messiah, to be the Christ. In fact, that's why he asked in verse 29, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? I mean, you think about that. They've spent some time with Jesus. This is halfway through the gospel of of Mark, and, and Jesus is asking them, who do you think I am, guys? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And don't get me wrong, 
Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. In fact, in Matthew, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, yes, that's the right answer. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. But then he tells them in Mark 8.30, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. In other words, he said, yes, I am the Christ. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. We see Jesus actually doing this over and over and over again, especially in the Gospel of Mark, but throughout all the Gospels. Right? He'd heal someone, and then he'd tell them, don't go tell anyone. He'd cast out a demon, and the demon would proclaim, you are the Son of God, and he would stop them from speaking. On the Mount of Transfiguration, where he showed his glory to the disciples, right? he knocks them on their knees. As they're coming down the mountain, he tells them, don't tell anyone. Why? Why didn't Jesus want people to know he was the Messiah? Well, it's actually pretty simple because people had a false understanding about what the Messiah would be. They had false expectations on who the Messiah was and what he would be. One commentator put it this way, Jesus rarely asserted his messianic title and generally avoided the term Messiah or Christ because the title was so politicized. In Jesus' day, the title Messiah was not generally thought to be a divine title, but that of an anointed agent, in other words, a human, descended from David's royal line, a king that came from the line of David, who had cast out the Romans and restore Israel. And that's exactly what the people um, of Israel wanted. In other words, in the time of Jesus, in the context of, of the Gospels, people thought the Christ would be an anointed man from the line of David, used by God to overthrow the Romans, a warrior that would establish Israel as the world power to sit on the throne of David as an earthly king, a geopolitical king. But that wasn't Jesus. He was the son of God. He came to die for our sins. Therefore, Jesus stayed away from the title Christ or Messiah, even though he was the Christ, even though he was the Messiah. He told the disciples, don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah until the resurrection. And after the resurrection, go and tell the world. Because then people would know exactly why Jesus came to die on the cross and on the third day to be raised from the dead. So he didn't use the title Christ. Instead, he preferred the title Son of Man. If you would, look at verse 69. It says this, But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, the Son of Man is a very interesting title. It's interesting for three reasons, and I've always been very intrigued by this title for three reasons. And here's the three reasons. First, in the gospel, the title Son of Man was Jesus' favorite way of labeling himself. In fact, it was the only title he uses freely. Over 65 times he claimed to be the Son of Man. If you want to know who Jesus claimed to be, it's clearly he claimed to be the Son of Man. Second reason why this is a very interesting title is the title's not used by anyone else. It's only used by Jesus and a lot. 
There's no evidence in Acts or, or the epistles or extra-biblical documents that the early church called Jesus a son of man. It seems like the only person that called himself that was Jesus. And again, it was his preferred title. In fact, even to this day, it's not a title we use. I can't think of one Christmas song that's worshiping the Son of Man. No one came up to me first service and gave me one either, so I think I'm pretty safe. Right? It's not a title we use. Third reason why this is an interesting title is because up to this point, the night at, at, of his arrest, when Jesus used the title Son of Man, he gets no reaction by anyone. 65 times, and there's just no reaction. No one's offended, no one's shocked, no one's excited. Just no reaction, positive or negative. So what does this title mean, and why did Jesus call himself Son of Man? Well, of course, to answer this question, we have to look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament uses this title, Son of Man, and it's used often. In fact, let me just give you a few examples of it being used. Isaiah 51.12 says this, Who are you? That you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass. In other words, man and son of man is used here as synonymous. Right? Son of man just means I'm man. I'm human. Same thing in Psalms 8 verse 3. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Or Isaiah 56, 2, blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast. Again, synonymous, human, man, and son of man. Or Job 35, 6, how much less is man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? Over and over again we see in the Old Testament that man and son of man are synonymous. In other words, son of man means human. There's even a sense of humility in this title. I'm just a man. I'm just a son of man. I'm nothing special. In fact, in the book of Ezekiel, it's used 93 times describing Ezekiel. God calls him the son of man, really saying you're just man. It's a humble, humble way of saying you're just a man, Ezekiel. It's probably why people thought Jesus was a prophet. I mean, think about it. He did miracles, ridiculous miracles like the prophets. He spoke boldly and authoritatively like the prophets. And he called himself the son of man like Ezekiel. So people thought he was just a prophet. But on the night of his arrest, Jesus showed the religious leaders, the Jewish nation, and the world exactly what he meant by son of man. If you will, look at verse 69 again. It says this, But from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. This one verse is one of the deepest theological statements in all of Scripture. We could honestly spend weeks on this one verse. In fact, if you would, turn with me to Matthew 26, verse 63. Jesus says the, the same thing. It's just written, I think, a little bit clearer. 
Matthew 26, verse 63. Verse 63 says this, But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. The statement is profound, deep, and meaningful. Jesus is explaining exactly who he is, who he claims to be. And I think the high priest gets it. Look at his reaction. Matthew uh, 26 verse 65 says, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. You know what? From this point on, the whole Jewish nation turns on Jesus. And when you think about that, a week earlier, Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and people were laying down palm branches and throwing their shirts down and and praising him. Thousands of people. This one statement, it all changes and the whole Jewish nation turns on Jesus. In fact, I believe it's this point that Jesus' fate is sealed and he will go to the cross. What did Jesus say that was so shocking? Well, in this verse, he actually quotes two Old Testament passages, and in doing so, he fills meaning into the term Son of Man that he used over 65 times in his ministry. We need to look at these two Old Testament passages to understand exactly what Jesus meant when he said Son of Man. The first one is from Psalms 110. If you could, turn to Psalms 110 real quick. Jesus says, The Son of Man is seated at the right hand of power. Seated at the right hand of power. Psalms 110, verse 1. Says this. The Lord, I want you to notice that the L-O-R-D there is all capitalized. In other words, that's the name Yahweh. It's God's covenantal name, Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord, that's lowercase. The L is capitalized, but everything else is lowercase. That's Adonai in Hebrew. Adonai means means Lord, Master, or King. In other words, God is speaking to a Lord, Master, or King. And he says to him, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is very interesting because the author of this psalm is David. In other words, David says, Yahweh, the Lord God, Yahweh says to my Lord. Well, who is this my Lord? In fact, Jesus makes an interesting observation about this psalms in Mark 12, verse 35. He says this, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself says in the Holy Spirit, declares, The Lord, that's God, says to my Lord, that's the Messiah. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Jesus' observation is this, this king, this Messiah that's coming, talked about in Psalms 110, is greater than David. In fact, he existed before David. David calls him Lord. That's amazing. 
And look what Psalms 110 says. Yahweh tells this coming Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, this king that's coming will sit at the right hand of God, Yahweh. Not only that, look at verse 4. The Lord, again, that's Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not only will, will this coming Messiah be king forever, but he's also priest forever too. Which is really interesting because, because Jesus is talking to the high priest and pretty much in this one verse tells the high priest, you're not high priest anymore, I am. And I'll be priest forever. So when Jesus says the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of power, he is saying, I am the king found in Psalms 110 who existed before David, who will be king forever, who will sit at the right hand of God forever, who will be priest forever. There's so much more we can say about Psalms 110, but I really want to look at the second passage Jesus quotes. Right? He says, The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a quote from Daniel 7, so if you would, turn to Daniel 7. A little bit of context of Daniel 7 as you're turning there. Daniel is this prophet well before Jesus was ever born. And he's been giving these visions throughout the book of Daniel. And you kind of add the visions together. You, you see what's going on in, in these visions and what, what God is prophesying is going to happen. And, and if you look at verse 3, it says this, Daniel chapter 7 verse 3. It says this, And four great beasts came out of the sea different from one another. The sea in antiquity was, was used often as a metaphor for chaos or, or disorder. Right? The sea was a dangerous place to, to get in a boat and go out in the sea. Just, it was unpredictable. And so it was used as a metaphor often as chaos. There's four beasts coming out of these chaos. Beasts, wild animals, as we'll see. These four beasts, if you look at the context of Daniel, represent four kings. Four different kings that would be coming. Four kings and their kingdoms. Four world powers coming out of this chaos of the sea. Look at verse 4. It says this, The first, this first beast, the first was like a lion and had eagle wings. First beast is a lion. If there was an animal I wouldn't want to be locked in a room with, one of them would be a lion, Right? Especially one with eagle wings that could fly. I mean, then that's just scary, right? That's, and that's the point. If you look at the context of, of Daniel, this is talking about the, the Babylonian kingdom, in particular the Babylonian king, and it's probably Nebuchadnezzar who, who is being prophesied here. And his kingdom, like a lion, like a wild animal. Look at verse 5. And behold, another beast coming out of this chaos, right? Another beast, a second one, like a bear. Now, if there was another animal I wouldn't want to be locked into a room with, it would be a bear. Right? The second beast is a bear, and again, this is probably the uh, Medo-Persian Meta-Persia, king and kingdom. Um, and look what it says in verse 5. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise and devour much flesh. This is a wild animal that has ribs in its mouth that is eating flesh. And that's what 
what this kingdom is pictured as. You learn about the Babylonian kingdom and the Persian kingdom and, and how ugly these kingdoms were in warfare. Look at verse 6. And after this I looked and behold another like a leopard. This is a third beast. And again, if there was an animal I wouldn't want to be locked in a room with, a leopard would be one. This is Alexander the Great and the Greeks. If you know the history of Alexander the Great, he conquered swiftly like a leopard. In fact, he died at a very young age after conquering the known world. Daniel's getting this vision and prophesying all this. And in verse 7, look what it says. A fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. This fourth beast, there's, there's no animal that can describe it. They don't even, he doesn't even mention an animal. He just says it's terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong. This is the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor. Four beasts ravaging the earth like wild animals coming out of, a, of the sea. Beast, right? The kings and these kingdoms. Now skip to verse 13. It says this in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. Now we move from the, the chaos of the sea to the clouds of heaven. Verse 13. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. One like a son of man with the clouds of heaven. This king looked like a human. This is in contrast, is meant to be in contrast of the beast, the wild animals, these, these kingdoms that devoured flesh. This king is human, civil, and just. He's not a beast like the other kings terrorizing the world. This king is a son of man like a human. He came with the clouds of heaven. Now there's a close connection in the Old Testament with God Riding on clouds and judgment. We see this in Psalms 97 verse 2. It says this, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. It's, this is God. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. In Isaiah 19.1 it says, says this, An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord, that's Yahweh, is riding on a swift cloud. And comes to Egypt and, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. In other words, Yahweh is coming to Egypt to judge. Or Nahum chapter 1 verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is a whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Again, there's this connection between God, clouds, and judgment. Look at verse 13 again. It says this, I saw in the night's visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. A king is coming. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. A king is coming that's able to stand in the presence of God. In verse 14, and, and to him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. Verse 14 is interesting because the Son of Man is not just the King of Israel. 
Look what it says. It says he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His kingdom's over everything. It's also interesting in verse 14, the word serve there. Most of Daniel is written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. And the word serve is synonymous in Aramaic to worship. We see this throughout Daniel. That Daniel uses this word, serve, as worship. So let me read it again in that, in that mindset. Verse 14, it says this, And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom and all peoples and nations and languages should worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Listen, Jesus, on the night when he was arrested, revealed exactly what he meant when he used the title over 65 times, Son of Man. He was referring to the Son of Man in Daniel 7. When Jesus said in Matthew 26, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, that's Psalms 110, and coming on the clouds of heaven, that's Daniel 7. It was shocking. When Jesus called himself Son of Man, he meant that he will sit at the right hand of Yahweh, be king forever, be priest forever, be given the kingdoms of the earth be given all authority and an everlasting dominion which all peoples, nations, and languages will worship him. He was claiming to be preexistent. He was claiming that one day he will come back on the clouds of heaven to judge the earth. Listen, before the Sanhedrin, he told them exactly what he meant by son of man. You will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And I think the high priest got it. I think the religious leaders who knew their Old Testament extremely well got it because this is their response. They tore their robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Sanhedrin got it. And so they ask him a final question. If you would, turn back to Luke 22, verse 70. Luke 22, verse 70. So they, they all said, Are you the Son of God then? One commentator said this about this title, the Son of God. The title Son of God describes the unique father-son relationship within the Trinity. To be the Son, the way Jesus' incarnation was described by Gabriel, is to be divine. The opening verses of John's Gospel describe the relationship as an eternal and equal. John says in John 1, 1 through 2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. To be the Son of God in the way Jesus describes himself is to be God. Look at verse 70 again. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? In other words, are you claiming to be God's unique Son? Are you claiming to be equal with God? 
And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. In other words, his own lips have condemned him. And from this point on, Jesus' fate was sealed. He was going to the cross. The nation turns on him, the religious leaders turn on him, and the Romans ultimately crucify him. So who did Jesus claim to be? It's clear Jesus didn't just claim to be the Messiah. He was the Messiah, but he didn't just claim to be the Messiah, the son of David, the king. He didn't just claim to be the son of man, a preexistent heavenly being that boldly approaches Yahweh, who's given dominion of the world, who is worship, given an everlasting kingdom, who is king and priest forever. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, equal to God in knowledge, equal to God in power, equal to God in value, yet completely submissive to God as his, in his role as Son. This is who Jesus claimed to be. And I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, when it comes to Jesus, you really only have three options. Either he was a liar he was a lunatic, or he truly was God incarnate. There's no fourth option. You can't say Jesus was just a good teacher, a moral man, a good example. Either he is God, worthy of our praise and worship, or he is not, just a lunatic or a liar. His claims were too lofty to be anything else. So I leave you with this question this morning. What do you believe? Where are you at this morning? Do you believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the one who came to die for our sins? Do you believe he is divine, the son of God? Do you believe he was raised from the dead? And now is sitting at the right hand of God the Father as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, who will one day come back and judge the world? Do you believe what Jesus claimed about himself? Because your belief will determine where you spend eternity. Put your faith in Christ. He came, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross for our sins and was raised on the third day. Trust in him this morning. If you would, pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I thank you, Lord, for your son. God, as we just celebrated Christmas and our, our minds were, were on this baby in a manger, Lord, I pray that we, we never forget Jesus' life and death on the cross. And that he didn't stay a baby. And that he didn't stay dead. That he was raised on the third day and he sits at your right hand. And one day we'll come back. God, if there's someone that does not know you this morning that is listening to this, Lord, I pray that they are terrified of that. 
that he will come back and judge. That their only hope is to put their faith in him, to cry out for mercy, to trust that, that he truly died on the, the cross for their sins, and to throw themselves in, into your grace, Lord, to accept your grace, this free gift that's being offered to them, Lord. God, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning and we reflect and remember what your son did on the cross, Lord, I pray for us that have put their faith in him, Lord, that we examine our lives and see where we haven't submitted everything to Jesus. God, and there's something in our lives we need to repent from, Lord. I pray that we take that time this morning knowing who he is and what he's done for us. In your son's name. Amen.